Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the ongoing Ukrainian counteroffensive and the weird case of crypto-hacking the Russian secret services. We also hear from David Knowles on the road somewhere in Europe, heading towards Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday the 13th of June, one year and 109 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by Assistant Common Editor Francis Durnley, Senior Tech Reporter Gareth Caulfield and our roving reporter David Knowles. I started with the latest updates from Ukraine. But let me start with the latest updates from Ukraine. So last night there were Russian strikes across the country, 14 kh 101 and uh, 555 cruise missiles and four Shahid drones were fired across the country. Ten cruise missiles and one drone were shot down. That's according to the Ukrainian armed forces. But some obviously did get through. In Kriviri, that's down to the in sort of Zaporizhia area, a five-storey building was hit. The mayor, Alexander Vilkul, said three hours ago that, that uh, that's resulted in 10 dead, one missing and 28 injured. Aside from that, there's been shelling across the country in uh, Sumy, Chernihiv and Kharkiv regions, as well as uh, a few other places. And also yesterday during the day, two calibre sea launch cruise missiles were fired and hit residential buildings in Kharkiv. On the Ukrainian counteroffensive, there's been little movement of the line, incredibly violent, but little movement of the lines around Bakhmut. And Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister, Hannah Malyar, she said that Ukrainian forces have now... Well, that she said they've liberated Lubkove, which is about 30 k's south of Zaporizhia, about the same distance, 30 k's sort of southwest of Orkhiv. This is on the bend, or just short of the bend in the Dnipro River, where the river 
goes from north south to, to east west at that sort of elbow there the the uh, Lobkove is just inland from there Ms Malia didn't say when that had happened but we think that was in the last the last few days elsewhere so inside Russia now there's been a large well there was a, an attack on the on a big oil facility or storage facility in Krasnodar so this is 150 k's east of the Kirsch bridge so quite far inside Russia and also the the Russian installed mayor of Melitopol has said a recreation center in Primorsk has been hit now this is down on the coast on the Sea of Azov coast about 80 k's east of uh, Melitopol Almost halfway between Melitopol and, and Mariupol. I mean, Melitopol is not on the coast, but in, halfway between those two on the coast, that's where this thing was hit. This was um, said to be a base for, for Russian troops. There's images on, on social media, you'll find it. Big five-story block there with a, with a massive great chunk taken out of it in the middle. Elsewhere, Russia has confirmed that uh, another Russian general has, uh, has become a 200. That's, the, that's Russia's code number for killed in action. And um, 300 means wounded in action. But Major General Sergei Goryachev, who was the chief of staff of 35th Combined Arms Army, was killed yesterday in a missile strike. This was this is according to pro-Russian military bloggers. Sorry, not the not the state. But he was reportedly killed heavy fighting around around the so-called uh, Vremivka Ledge. This is in southern Donetsk on the on the central axis of those three that I've been describing, one in the east, basically through Bakhmut and the Donbass, one heading around southeast from uh, Vlika, Novosilka, and then one further from in sort of Zaporizhia area going due south. This is the middle of those, the central axis, heading southeast from Vlika, Novosilka. I, I mean, it's unusual to have such senior ranking officers killed. He's the fifth general, high-ranking general, Russian general, killed since the full-scale invasion started. Unusual to have them so far forward. Early last year, early in the in this phase of the war, when a number were killed, it was assessed that actually they were having to go forward to to push people on, push the because the, the the offensive was stalling, and as obviously as we now know, it, it ultimately had to retreat and get out of there. But as it started to stall, these these senior commanders were go, were going forward and therefore being more vulnerable and um, and killed that way. I would imagine something similar is happening here. That central axis seems to be the most fruitful at the moment for Ukraine. Therefore, I wouldn't be surprised that he had decided to go to go forward to, to uh, get his own view and try and uh, galvanise the situation and was obviously obviously caught out yesterday and killed in a missile strike. Now, Gaz, can I turn to you, please? There's a, a somewhat a rather bizarre story, actually, about a, a hacker accessing cryptocurrency wallets belonging to Russian special services and diverting assets to Ukraine. What can you tell us? Thanks, Dom. As to the rather interesting analysis, it's from a company called Chain Analysis. They specialise in looking at Bitcoin, blockchains and all those sort of exciting digital tokens. Now, they discovered, and this has only recently sort of come back up to light again, but they discovered in the early part of this year that a Ukraine, what appears to be a pro-Ukrainian hacktivist has been going through the Bitcoin blockchain, claims to have identified something like 984 Bitcoin wallets, which are separate sort of addresses, a bit like a bank account, uh, has identified all of these Bitcoin wallets and has then been taking action on his own to effectively disable them and destroy the Bitcoin held within uh, as part of his uh, crusade against all things Russian. Now, the way he's done this, um, it's a little bit technical, so bear with us, but... 
on the Bitcoin network, when you when you send you know, when you when you make a transaction, when you send Bitcoin from person A to person B, uh, there's a little field in that which is in the transaction, similar to when you make a bank transaction, you can put a description in. Now, this description field on Bitcoin is called op or op underscore return. It's got two key features. Number one, you can put a, a textual message in there, and number two, according to chain analysis any Bitcoin linked to a transaction with an op return message on it is effectively deleted. So not only do the messages then get attached to the blockchain, but also the Bitcoins are destroyed. So this chap in sending sort of 900, sorry, 986 of these messages with op return flags set has managed to destroy a rather large number of Bitcoin as well as, so he hopes, outing the the uh, Bitcoin wallets that are controlled by three of Russia's security agencies, that is the FSB, the SVR, and the GRU. Uh, these are the three main foreign intelligence agencies of Russia. Now, this, this is, has sort of gone under the radar and has sort of come up recently in the context of the, of the counteroffensive Ukraine is mounting against Russia. But the idea, it also sort of sheds a light on the fact that there's a lot of you might call it almost unofficial activity. So to be clear, we're, we, we're not entirely sure who this chap is, or if it even, even is a chap, it could be a lady, of course. It looks like a piece of, of activism. I mean, the, the Chainalysis research report on this, it's dated to, to uh, middle, late April, says that it describes this as a vigilante action. But of course, it could well be part of the official Ukrainian activity. But look, what's your feeling here? This Is this a lone hacktivist or are you sniffing something a bit more state-sponsored? To me, I think this is a lone hacktivist. The ability to go and destroy and delete Bitcoin is, is something which in theory anyone can do on the Bitcoin network. But of course, it's a very destructive activity. You are literally destroying wealth, destroying a form of digital cash in effect. So I suspect this is a, a lone wolf, a lone activist who's realised he can do this and has found what he himself believes are good targets to deploy that against. Now, just sort of echoing what Chainalysis said about this, we don't know who he is. They, just, they themselves describe him as a vigilante. And we don't know for sure whether those Bitcoin addresses are in fact linked to the Russian intelligence agencies. Although having just said that, we know three of them are. And these three are very interesting in themselves. Two of them are known to, to Chainalysis and to the wider cryptocurrency community to have been linked to Russia previously during something called the SolarWinds hack. Now, that was a Russian intelligence operation uh, against a US company called SolarWinds who make computer network monitoring software. That sounds rather dull and boring, right? SolarWinds supplied something like 11,000 customers worldwide, including most of the U.S. military, the British Armed Forces, the Ministry of Defense, and many others. So that was a real intelligence coup. So the linking of two Bitcoin addresses used to extort victims of that hack, or to induce them into paying a ransom for stolen files and so on, to this hacktivist thing where he's discovered other allegedly Russia-linked Bitcoin addresses and has gone and destroyed their cryptocurrencies and left a flag on them, you know, a digital post-it note saying, look here, this is Russian, this is bad. I think lends a veneer of credibility, Dom, I would put it no higher than that, a veneer of credibility to the idea that he may have stumbled on something correct as a hacktivist. Fascinating. Thanks, guys. Well, let's try and keep in touch with that because that does, I mean, if, he's, if, he's, if he's a hacktivist and he's 
tapped into the uh, the main vein, then no doubt we'll hear more of that. But thanks, Gaz. Francis, can I turn to you? There's no doubt the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive has started. How has the diplomatic world reacted and what are the latest developments? Thanks, Tom. It's good to be back. It's been very interesting talking to people now that the counteroffensive has officially begun, as you say. As we predicted, many people's expectations for this offensive resemble in their mind's eye the scenes we saw in the offensives of last year. And I've been asked several times as a consequence whether Kyiv is failing because they are not making such rapid advances. In that sense, Ukraine is a victim of its own success, which does come with some potential political ramifications, as I talked about recently. Yet the liberation of territory, however small, still matters in the political front of this war. Progress is progress, after all. It's noteworthy, too. I think the Bakhmut is a site of such heavy fighting. It's a bad look for Russia to be claiming a huge victory there one week and then facing heavy fighting there the next. It's not the optics one would ideally want. So it has been very interesting spending a few days looking at this in a slightly more detached fashion and not doing the podcast and seeing how other people not following the war as closely as we all are, and our listeners are included in that, of course, are reacting to what we've seen now the counteroffensive has officially begun. Now, in terms of diplomacy, NATO has begun the largest air force deployment exercise in Europe in the alliance's history in a display of unity towards partners and potential threats such as Russia. It's German led. It's called Air Defender 23 and it will run until June 23rd and includes some 250 military aircraft from 25 NATO and partner countries. That includes Japan and Sweden, the latter, of course, which is bidding to join the alliance this year, which I think it will. And Japan, given their new significance in the Pacific and the way in which they've aligned themselves with the West on the matter of Ukraine, up to 10,000 people will participate in the drills, which are intended to boost the cooperative nature of how armies work together and their preparedness to protect against drones and cruise missiles in the case of an attack on cities, on seaports within NATO territory. These kind of exercises take place pretty frequently, but as I say, what's unusual about this one, I think, is the scale of it. Now, I imagine actually some listeners in Germany will be able to hear this. So do reach out if your windows are rattling as a consequence of the exercise or if you can see them in the skies above you. I grew up near air bases here in England, so I know what it's like. But staying with warfare and weaponry, an interesting piece of analysis from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. And it's published a a long paper highlighting that the stockpile of operational nuclear weapons has risen in the last year or so and has warned the world that they're entering a dangerous phase. So it estimates the number of warheads has increased by 86 in the past year to 9,500 76, continuing a trend seen in the past few years. Its director, called Dan Smith, doesn't mince his words. He says that we're drifting to a very dangerous period in human history. It's imperative that the world's governments find ways to cooperate in order to calm geopolitical tensions, slow arms races and deal with the worsening consequences of environmental breakdown and rising world hunger. And he says that whilst the numbers are beginning to tick up, they're still far lower than the 70,000 plus in the 1980s. But there has been this trend in the past 30 years of warheads increasing, particularly in countries such as China, India and Pakistan. And 
I think it's right in saying that Russia and the United States still have about 90% of the world's nuclear weapons if you combine the two. But in this latest study, the bulk of the increase comes from China, as I say, which boosts its stockpile from 350 to 410 warheads, with India, Pakistan and North Korea also upping their stockpiles, with Russia's growing slightly to a small extent from 4,477 warheads to 4,489. Now, one uh, alone, uh, if we if used would be terrible enough. But this matters because, of course, the more you have, the the danger of some kind of escalation increases, but also the dangers around the contain the containing of these things. And just purely the storage can lead to issues. And there's, of course, been a lot of speculation about the manner in which these warheads are stored. Are they safe? Are they being done in a way that means that actually they could ever never be used? Then there's all the questions around actually disposing of them in the long term. They don't have an endless shelf life. So it has uh, huge consequences, although, of course, we're not in the same world that we were in the Cold War, where it was just constantly thousands of new weapons being developed every year. But even so, as I say, one is bad enough. Now, turning to Ukraine specifically, we're learning, of course, more all the time about the consequences of the Novokovka dam explosion. The number of those who've died following flooding in the two Russian-controlled towns nearby in southern Ukraine has risen to 17. That's according to a Russian-installed official there. It's now been a week. I can't believe it has, but it's been a week since the dam burst. It's left around 700,000 people in southern Ukraine without access to fresh drinking water. The figures of those killed, of course, are not able to be independently verified. I expect they are considerably higher, given the fact that, you know, with flooding, you have to wait for the water levels to recede before we're able to really get an accurate measure of casualties. But nonetheless, there are as a recognition, at least, that people have died as a consequence of this activity. Just staying on this subject, a quick update on Zaporizhia. We understand that the water level at the ponds used to cool the reactors remain stable and sufficient, despite the water, the falling water level of the Kokovka reservoir nearby. That's according to Ukraine's environment environment minister. We will, of course, continue to keep a close eye on that. Now, just a few stories on Russia before I end. The FSB, we understand, has arrested a group of former defence industry workers suspected of supplying Ukraine with sensitive military information and planning sabotage attacks. So the security services has accused these employees who haven't been named of spying for Ukrainian military intelligence and of handing over technical documents and models used in the manufacture of weapons systems and equipment for the country's air force. The FSB also claimed in a statement that it was the same group which was involved in plans to blow up transport infrastructure such as railway lines used to supply Russian forces in Ukraine. We don't know any more about this, but I think it has been noticeable. And indeed, we've reported on this, the number of apparent sabotage attacks that have taken place in Russia in recent months. Though whether these individuals are really responsible or whether they are scapegoats, we just don't know. But it's interesting to see there has at least been a public recognition that something is going on within the country as a consequence of the war in Ukraine. Now, the other story relating to Russia is perhaps a little bit of an odd one, but I do think it's important to return to the subject whenever we can, because it really matters. 
if you think about how ordinary Russians view this war, perhaps a lot of the time they hear about it is through the church, the Russian Orthodox Church. And this story is that an ecclesiastical court of the church has apparently declared pacifism to be a heresy incompatible with its teachings. This is according to a report by a media outlet called SOTA, who cited documents in a case of a defrocking of a Russian Orthodox Church priest who spoke out against the invasion of Ukraine. In a sermon, they quote him as saying, we Christians dare not stand aside when a brother kills a brother, a Christian kills a Christian. And yet this has not gone down well at all. He tried to leave the church and join the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, but was then told in no uncertain terms that he would not be allowed to leave the Russian Orthodox Church, that he might be banned and stripped of his ministry. Apparently, nobody gets to leave the church on their own terms. That was something that was said to him. Nonetheless, the priest decided to submit an official request to transfer and was consequently banned from ministry, with a formal church trial now being scheduled for June 16th. But according to this report, the church's decision to disassociate from the priest was made personally from Patriarch Kirill. Of course, we've spoken about at length in the past and the alleged affiliations he has not only with Putin, but also with the former KGB. Now, apparently in the study, the pacifism as a concept that was used as a means by this priest to try and disaffiliate himself from the current view of the church on the war in Ukraine does not stand up. They've said that pacifism in this form is not compatible with the teaching of the Orthodox Church. It's set out in the fundamentals of the social concept. Pacifism has been present in heretical doctrines at various times in church history. And they accuse him of pseudo-pacifism, saying that he's criticised Russian authorities in the past. Now, I don't want to get into the nuances of theology and ecumenical disputes. I had, enough, had to do enough of that when I was studying late antiquity at university. But we have commented already on this podcast how the ROC has been politicised by this war in a way helpful to Moscow, something Putin has rewarded. Evidently, if this story is true, in all its details, then it would appear that it has pushed out a priest willing to criticise the position of the church in inciting violence against the country of Ukraine. It is behaving like a political entity as opposed to a theological one. But that doesn't necessarily come to a surprise to regular listeners, knowing what we know about the behaviour of the Russian Orthodox Church as a consequence of this war ever since it began. Now, interestingly, one just final point on, point on this and its re- consequences in Ukraine itself, such stridency has triggered a reaction in Ukraine towards the church and the more traditional values associated with it. Uh, Even figures in Ukraine associated with more conservative values are now supporting LGBT legislation in the country. For instance, The Guardian did an interesting piece on this recently, citing an MP who used to be opposed to such reforms, saying that anything our enemy hates, I will now support. And he goes on, if LGBT rights will never exist in Russia, it should exist and be supported here to show them and to signal to them that we are different. This law is like a smile towards Europe and a middle finger to Russia. So I support it. And over the last decade, as Ukrainian activists have strengthened democracy, they've also embraced 
more Western European values towards gay rights and such legislation has shifted fast as a consequence of that. A recent study found that 58% of Ukrainians felt positive or neutral towards their LGBT compatriots. Now that is low, of course, compared to the UK and many other Western European countries, but it represents a significant and rapid improvement if looked at historically. And whilst there are still many cases we hear of homophobia and particularly in the armed forces, soldiers being bullied on the front lines. I remember reading a, a study on that and citing it several months ago. The, the fact is, as I say, there has been an understanding that as a consequence of this war, there's been a shift towards a perhaps more Western European style of attitudes on these matters as a consequence to how Russia has sought to mobilise the kind of cultural front and the the idea of West becoming the West being decadent and Ukraine becoming part of that. As they have mobilised that cause, U- Ukraine has, has sought to respond by offering an alternative viewpoint. And as I say, citing this MP, it speaks to that. So quite an interesting story. And as I say, the when we're reflecting on this war, it doesn't just have ramifications militarily, politically, geopolitically. It has ramifications on people's everyday lives and the culture in which they live and grow up in. And this is just yet another example of that in both countries. Thanks, Francis. Just whilst you're here, I'm um, I'm having a look at at our live blog. So uh, Genevieve is running the live blog today. You'll find that on on our website. Well, I say you. I know you will. Francis, but everyone listening will find that on our website. Genevieve just put up a story saying that about uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, saying that he has said he's not sure whether Wagner is going to stay in Ukraine after having taken back moot, they're saying. Now, this is obviously in the context of, of the, the recent sort of toys out the pram between him and the Chechens and, and Shoigu and, and this, this idea put out of the weekend, or rather this directive, sorry, I should say, put out over the weekend by Shoigu and the the Russian MOD that all volunteer units, their words, volunteer units, i.e. all the private military companies, need to need to come under the, the, the organisation and control of the Russian MOD. And of course, Yevgeny Prigozhin said, no way, not going to do that. But I mean, this is, Francis, what's your view here? This is obviously, it's a long running dispute, but it, I mean, it's just, it's the scab that you can't stop picking and and what do you think is the eventual outcome if the if this open warfare between Prigozhin and Shoyu in effect if it doesn't if, if it's if it's not snipped off one way or the other what do, do you do you have any view on which way it's going to what, what would happen well, I think it entirely depends on the trajectory of the war, Dom. I mean, if the war continues to go in a direction that is negative for Putin, then I think these kind of challenges to his authority can only toxify further and increase tensions within the country. But of course, as we've seen, or at least has been speculated in recent months, as a result of these tensions, there have been attacks, maybe even assassinations of those who are friendly to Prigozhin within Russia. And I certainly don't think it's off the table that Prigozhin himself could be a victim of some kind of attack if he was really conceived of as a serious, serious threat to Putin's authority within the country. There is, of course, a lot of speculation about how these individuals could 
be an alternative form of power in the country in the long term, that if Putin were to be dethroned, that these would be the natural successors, as it were, that they would be able to claim, as Prigozhin has done consistently, that Moscow did not support the war in the way that it should have, and that if only groups like Wagner and private mercenaries had been given more flexibility, more resources, that this war would have been over by now and would have been successfully conducted. Whether that's true or not, uh, it remains to be seen. But I think that actually this is their attack line and that may not be an unattractive message in the long term, depending on how things play out. I mean, if you think about this historically, it's always very, very dangerous in any society to have a situation where you have military figures who have a base of power that is rooted in soldiers who are willing to fight for you rather than for the wider state. I mean, there's a reason why Hitler, for instance, saw it as so vital once he seized power to get the loyalty and the fealty of the armed forces as soon as possible and made them all declare loyalty to him personally, not to the state. That was absolutely integral because he knew the dangers of having rival sources of power. And of course, he famously purged the SA as well as a, uh, because he didn't want them to be a, a rival threat within the state. And that's, we don't need to just look for modern history for that. It happened in the Roman Empire. It was incredibly dangerous when you had generals who effectively were able to operate as their own power bases with their own armies attached to them. And ultimately, it's what arguably led to the collapse of the Roman Republic. So this is a a tale as old as time, is that when you have private armies, it's incredibly dangerous in febrile states. And so I think that we can certainly see that as being a, a possibility. Although, of course, the other side of the coin here is that if the Western countries looking at Russia think there's actually a high chance of that, then paradoxically, they may actually be more inclined to want to support Putin. I say support in the loosest possible sense because they'll be very anxious about what it would mean if one of these private contractors, private armies were to seize power in Russia because they think they'd be more inclined to mobilise further, to use nuclear weapons and they'd be less predictable would be the expectations than say somebody like Putin who of course has been operating on the world stage for many decades. So there's a lot of different factors here and actually in a weird way the existence of men like Boghossian may be playing as something of an it for Putin in the international stage because he knows that as much as the West say may fear him, they may fear men like Prigozhin even more. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Thanks, Francis. Now to uh, David, David Knowles, the littlest hobo, a man with friends in every town and village between here and Severodonetsk who knows every local custom, who can blend in, disappear, and who with any luck will be in Kiev already. David, how's your road trip going? Guten Tag. I'm currently stuck in a traffic jam in the Ruhr. Left London late yesterday afternoon, actually doing doing the pod with you guys, and we've been travelling ever since. For those of you who don't know the story, uh, travelling with a group of volunteers taking equipment to Ukrainian units fighting on the front line. We're driving across the whole of Europe to do that. So this morning we've, uh, I think we've gone through three, well, we're, we're currently in our third European country. One rather amusing thing has been both of us, myself and and my partner in this car, uh, have missed the boundaries between the countries. We've been looking elsewhere, looking at different things. So yeah, the Ruhr, I mean, it's really astonishing seeing the, just going across the Rhine and seeing the number of oh, absolutely gigantic factories, huge chimneys. It's, it's been very interesting. I mean, since we've set off, it's been, it's been astonishing crossing some of these borders. I mean, leaving the UK, going through the, the tunnel with, with, these, with these vehicles. We you know, drive up to the passport control 
the guy takes one look at what this convoy looks like and what it's carrying and says, all right then, off to Ukraine, are you? So the British border control clearly know what they're looking at. And there's been no trouble at all on, on any of the other, but from any of the other police or anything that we've, we've gone through. It's been, it's been really fascinating. Something I, I thought would come up later in the actual driving part of this trip is the, the history of the place. I mean, we were going driving across northern France and then through Belgium. And, you know, we've, we've spoken so many times about the, the relevance of those places. You know, going through Flanders, going past Dunkirk and going through Flanders, you can see on the side of the motorway the poppies. And for our international listeners, the, the red poppy, the red poppy of Flanders is a huge symbol of, of sacrifice, of Br- British sacrifice. It's a symbol for the British sacrifice in the First World War. And for, I, I was really struck, I think, by you know, maybe some of Roland's reporting when we hear from him sort of out in the field, out in Ukraine, that especially in the newsroom, when you, when you look at these places, for, for us in, in a newsroom which doesn't have much, much natural light or windows or anything, it, it can be very easy to think of some of these places as just names on a map. And you forget, you forget the sort of, the, 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 they really exist, they're really something, that the history is multi-layered. I mean, it's going past some of these Belgian farmhouses, these sort of little red farmhouses that wouldn't have been out of place at, at Waterloo. And then overlaid on, on top of that, of course, you've got what looks like the future of Europe. You've got the vast wind farms of northern France and Belgium and, and the Netherlands. And, and now here, right now, as I said, st- stuck in a traffic jam somewhere in the Ruhr, the, the sort of sheer industrial might of, of, of northern Germany, which you can see revealed. It's quite something. So it's been, it's been an interesting trip so far. I think the, the plan tonight is to get somewhere in Germany, then we'll head over to Poland and then hopefully be in country in, in, in Ukraine by Thursday. So that's, that's the lay of the land as it stands at the moment. Cool, cool. Thank you for that. So without giving any equipment details or anything like that, you said you had no problems at customs leaving leaving the UK. I mean, are you anticipating any further down the road? The team that's done this before, have they, have they hit any snags later on? And and your eventual plan, again, without telling us any, uh, any details you don't want to, but is that already in place or is it still being developed as you're going along? That's a good question. So on the... Um on the plan, it's it's starting to it's starting to firm up. I won't I won't say just yet. We'll probably wait. Whoa, uh, we'll probably wait until it's over actually for that. But we do have a sense where in country we'll be heading, where we'll, where we'll be. But it evolves all the time, Dom. I mean, there's there's new sort of as, as we discovered last year, without alluding too much to what happens with with the with the car getting the car over the border or not over the border. That th- th- there are some you know new regulations that are potentially coming into force here that we're having to look at and think about. And it's been quite a, it's been quite an education for me to be a sort of uh, not a backseat driver, but I've been hopefully hopefully a useful navigator. Doing, <laughs> I'm getting a thumbs up. I'm do, doing my best. Um, now we're in the EU. It's pretty. I mean, we basically should be fine until we get to the Ukrainian border. Um, it should be completely plain sailing until we're actually going to the border guards there and and sort of explaining explaining why they're there and what we plan to do. Hi, David. Glad your trip is going well. Just wondering what the. I know obviously we don't want to talk about too much about volunteers because we don't want to give identities away, etc. But just interested generally on reflections and feeling amongst volunteers now that the counteroffensive has formally begun. We've obviously been waiting now for many months for the official announcement, as it were, and knew that this would be a, a huge impetus really for many in Europe. Did you get that sense speaking to the volunteers that you're with that this is this is a real you know we're feeling you were talking about there the kind of the weight of history do you feel you're in history at the moment quite many of the people on this convoy have done it a few times so for them there's a sort of there's a um a grim desire to see this through i think i mean the the, i've spoken to several people about you know why are you here what are you doing this for and there's there's a real sort of i would say you know an iron backbone for the people doing this that then you know they know it's they know it's a big thing to drive across europe and to do this and to to 
to sort of liaise with the with the Ukrainians on the other side and try and work out what they need. And obviously, we're hearing we, we hear a lot from the Ukrainians they talk to and, and their their morale at the, at the same time. And I would say, yeah, that's it's, it's a, that's a really difficult question. I think I, I'll ask more questions, Francis, and maybe tomorrow I'll be able to give you a better sense. But there's a there's a, there's a resolve and a backbone and a yeah determination that I, I sort of thought I'd, I expected slash thought would be there, but it's quite something to see it in the flesh. I mean, the, 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 these people are, are, are keeping an army that is that is starting to push Putin's military force back. The, the, these are some of the people helping them do that. That's that's an, an incredible thing to, to witness. Cool. Thanks, David. Well, let's leave it there. We'll tie in with you again tomorrow, tech permitting and security permitting. But uh, we'll, we'll speak. We'll speak tomorrow. Just before you dash off, uh, let's go to you. If you've got any final thoughts before we, uh, well, before we, we lose you, and then I'll uh, and then I'll hand over to Francis. Sure thing. Well, very quickly, the final thought is, yeah, it's just that sense that sense of history going through all these familiar names and seeing them again, and then and then zipping past them and wondering what else is going. I mean, Francis, you talked about the dam busters a couple of days ago. We've just gone past the sort of signs to the to the to the lakes and the dams that that were blown by by the British bombers in the Second World War. So it suddenly all becomes, as I said, not places on a map. These are real places, real people, and that's been the that's been the sort of oh, oh yes, looking out the window now, another giant Ruhr factory. Gosh, we're in we're in we're in deep Germany here. I better go. We're, we're, we're just out of the traffic jam. So thanks, guys. Stay safe. Right. Well, there he goes into the um, into the sunset in the Ruhr Valley. Francis, any final thoughts? I'm not sure how dangerous David thinks telegraph towers are. I mean, sometimes the coffee machine breaks. But anyway, but for my final thoughts, I'm grateful to a listener who sent me a quote from Václav Havel, who, of course, was the former head of Czechoslovakia after the collapse of communism, a real hero in that part of the world and an absolutely extraordinary man. Indeed, I would say he's probably one of my political heroes in modern European history. His memoir on what it was like being a dissident under communism and then through no sort of a desire to assume power, but by being sort of having power thrust upon him, what it was like governing a country coming out of communism is absolutely fascinating. And I know that's always David's phrase, but I'm going to steal it for this one because it really, really is. It's called To the Castle and Back. There's also an excellent biography by somebody who used to work with him. And I remember that one of the most interesting insights that he offers is about the way in which the communists thought about time that if you went to a lot of the because the, the main base for the communists as it is now for all of the government in, in, in now what is now Czechia or Czech Republic as it used to be known the, is in Prague Castle in Prague and when Václav Havel was sent to the castle as it were to become the head of state the most extraordinary thing was that there were no clocks there and he asked why this was. And it was because of this idea, it was meant to be a, a literal embodiment of the communist idea that time had essentially stopped, that progress was had reached its maximum potential or at least was on the pathway to doing so. And he just saw that as a, a symbol of, of, of the way in which the communist authorities operated in a way that was so detached from everyday reality. But as I say, this is all a, a preamble for the quote I actually want to read, which was sent by this listener. So it says, I think that for many centuries there has been such a Russian problem that Russia does not know exactly where it begins and where it ends. Even though it is the largest country in the world, it still feels that it is a bit small and that it is threatened even by the tiny neighbours around it. And I think this is a very insightful remark by Havel. And I think he's absolutely right 
to point out that despite its large size, there is an inferiority complex in Russia. And it has been there for a very, very long time indeed. One registered it in the 19th century when it talks about Napoleon and French and the French attitudes, for instance. But one also registered it, of course, in the 20th century around communism and during the Cold War. You could say that almost, I was talking earlier about the nuclear stockpile. So much of that comes from a place not of strength, but from comparative weakness. And it's, of course, continued investment in trying to be the technological superpower which effectively bankrupted it in the long run. So I think he's absolutely right to draw attention to this. Although one other, uh, I think, remark when we're reflecting on the size of Russia that's quite interesting is that, yes, it is huge. And yes, that has been its saving grace in history. Interestingly, if you look at the way in which Russia's geography is shaped, it's quite easy, and this is something that Napoleon and obviously Hitler found, that to invade Russia, because its front is narrower, it's a narrower country, but it's what its front widens and widens and widens the further east that you go, which of course means that your supply lines are threatened and everything else. So yes, whilst that's all true, that its geography is massive and almost inconceivably massive, at the same time, power is incredibly concentrated in the cities of Moscow and St. Petersburg. And in a sense, if you launch a coup there in those places, which has happened numerous times in Russian history or attempted coups, if you can successfully do that, then you can effectively control the entire country. And so there is a lesson there that, yes, be intimidated by Russia's size. It is a huge place. But at the same time, if we're talking about regime changes, there can be profound shifts that can transform everything overnight because power is so concentrated. So it's geography, it's size, it matters. Perhaps it doesn't matter as much as as we think it does sometimes. And perhaps that's a hint of optimism. I don't know, but something to reflect on at least. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest, as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear. And the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.